This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Searching with Seneca. So today we are focusing on letter number 33, on the futility of learning maxims. This is quite a long letter, and it's also a very important letter. The reason I think that it's uh, really critical in Seneca's writings is because in this letter, Seneca is really telling us how he wants us to read his own writings, right? Now, he doesn't explicitly say that. He doesn't say, this is how I want you to read my writings, but he's talking to us about the kinds of people who just look for little bits of wisdom here and there, and then they memorize that that little bit of wisdom from a great teacher, and they think that that's doing the work of philosophy. But nonetheless, Seneca believes, as in the title of the uh, of, of the letter, that it is futile to simply collect these maxims and put them to memory. What we need to understand is the whole body of work as as a whole, right? As a collection. What is the story that is being told over multiple works by a single great mind, right? So uh, it's quite a long letter, as I said, and I think I'm going to read till about halfway in this first episode on this letter, and then we'll do the second half uh, in the next episode. So we'll dive in. I'll, I'll read this first half, and then uh, we'll talk about what we can take away from it. He says, quote, You wish me to close these letters also, as I closed my former letters, with certain utterances taken from the chiefs of our school. But they did not interest themselves in choice extracts. The whole body of their work is full of strength. There is unevenness, you know, when some objects rise conspicuous above others. A single tree is not remarkable if the whole forest rises to the same height. Poetry is crammed with utterances of this sort, and so is history. For this reason, I would not have you think that these utterances belong to Epicurus. They are common property, and are emphatically our own. They are, however, more noteworthy in Epicurus, because they appear at infrequent intervals and when you do not expect them and because it is surprising that brave words should be spoken at any time by a man who made a practice of being effeminate, for that is what most persons maintain. In my own opinion, however, Epicurus is really a brave man, even though he did wear long sleeves. Fortitude, energy, and readiness for battle are to be found among the Persians, just as much as among men who have girded themselves on high. End quote. Okay, so we're going to pause here for a while because there's a lot of really important stuff to take out of these few verses. We haven't even made it to halfway through the letter. So firstly, he's pointing out that, look, you're asking me to give you these quotes, these choice extracts from these great teachers of the Stoic school, but he's saying, you know, that's not what they were doing. They weren't doing that. They weren't taking one quote here and there and putting them together and memorizing these quotes. No, no, no. See, the whole body of their work, Seneca says, shows great strength. And he points this out by saying that a single tree is not remarkable if the whole forest rises to the same height, right? And so he's saying that, listen, 
you can go anywhere in these great teachers' writings and you're going to find something absolutely amazing, right? So look at the whole body of the work so that you can get a full picture of exactly the truth that they're trying to get at. And then moving on, Seneca kind of talks about perhaps the reason why he is quoting Epicurus so often. As you'll know, he quotes Epicurus often at the end of his letters. And he said, I would not have you think that these utterances belong to Epicurus. They are common property and are emphatically our own. Now, this is something that I love about Seneca, right, is his insistence that it doesn't matter where you find wisdom. If you find wisdom, it belongs to you if you're a true philosopher. You know, wisdom is common property. So when we are seeking around looking for for, for great wisdom, you know, I've often seen people... For example, in Stoic chats on social media, uh, on online, you know, somebody will post a quote from somebody who doesn't claim to be a Stoic and perhaps hasn't studied the Stoic school of philosophy. And immediately you'll start to see people come on and they'll be like, well, he's not a Stoic or she's not a Stoic and that's not Stoicism. And you start to think, hang on where's your value hierarchy? You know, like, is is wisdom at the top? Are you seeking wisdom? Are you practicing philosophy? Philo, love, Sophia, wisdom, love wisdom. Seek it out, right? You know, because if we get so uh, ideological in our approach to Stoicism, we can start to think that all there is to this philosophy is just what the ancient teachers said. But if you look at their whole body of work as a whole, they're teaching us to seek wisdom and to act as if that pursuit is incredibly important. And they all say at one point or another that, you know, like Seneca, he says that there's, there's, there's not been a monopoly on truth. You know, there's no monopoly on truth. There will be enough left for the future generations. And that's our job. Our job is to, to seek out the best possible wisdom. And that is common property. It doesn't matter where you find it. If it's wisdom, it's wisdom by definition. And it's funny here because Seneca, you you can't really tell how he thinks about Epicurus because on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, he's got some wisdom and and we should want that. It's common property. And then he kind of goes on to say, well, they are, however, more noteworthy in Epicurus because they appear at infrequent intervals and when you do not expect them. And because it is surprising that brave words should be spoken at any time by a man who made a practice of being effeminate. So I can't tell if Seneca is praising Epicurus or if he's taking a dig at him, but later on he does go back and say, uh, you know, that he believes that Epicurus uh, was a brave man, even though he did wear long sleeves. And apparently wearing long sleeves was kind of a sign of being effeminate. You know, it says in the notes here uh, in this translation by Richard Montgomery, the sleeveless and girt up tunic is the sign of energy of uh, Horace, And he says that uh, the effeminate Caligula would appear in public with a long-sleeved tunic and bracelets. So anyway, we're going to leave that behind us and we're going to keep on reading. And he goes on to say, quote, Therefore, you need not call upon me for extracts and quotations. Such thoughts as one may extract here and there in the works of other philosophers run through the whole body of our writings. Hence, we have no show-window goods, nor do we deceive the purchaser in such a way that, if he enters our shop, he will find nothing except that which displayed in the window. We allow the purchasers themselves 
to get their samples from anywhere they please. Suppose we should desire to sort out each separate motto from the general stock. To whom shall we credit them? To Zeno, Cleanthes, Chrysippus, Panaetius, or Posidonius? We Stoics are not subjects of a despot. Each of us lays claim to his own freedom. With them, on the other hand, and Seneca is talking about the Epicureans, whatever Hermarchus says, or Metrodorus, is ascribed to one source. In that brotherhood, everything that any man utters is spoken under the leadership and commanding authority of one alone. We cannot, I maintain, no matter how we try, pick out anything from so great a multitude of things equally good. Only the poor man counts his flock. End quote. Okay, so these last few verses are just amazing, right? You know, Seneca is really showing us here that we do not have to be tyrannized by the teachers of the past, right? And it's such a great point to say, you know, who are we going to ascribe these thoughts to? Is it Zeno? Is it Cleanthes? Is it Chrysippus? Is it this or is that? You know, because ultimately, I mean, the Stoic work is a continuous work. Everyone is building off the previous teachers, right? And he's, he's so right when he says that we all stake our own claim to freedom, right? Because ultimately, that's the goal. And if you're always a student, then you know, you're never going to be the person who actually attains that freedom as says something for yourself, right? If you're always a seeker, you're never a finder, right? And Seneca is saying here, look, we find the truth that everybody is trying to get at here, and then we say something. And when you try to kind of always be going back to, well, he said this, and hey, he said that, and he said this, it just, it, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You want to be the person who's actually able to see and experience the enlightenment that the Stoics had, right? And while I really do understand the irony of what I'm about to do, I, I really want to read you a passage that I picked up from Ralph Waldo Emerson's book, Self-Reliance, one of the most powerful works that I've ever read, and I, I couldn't recommend it more highly, right? Uh, but he really speaks to this idea that Seneca's giving us here. He, he quote, Seneca quotes at the end here this little this little line, only the poor man counts his flock, right? Think about that as I read you this passage from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who says, quote, We are like little children who repeat by rote the sentences of grandams and tutors, and as they grow older, of the men of talents and character they chance to see, painfully recollecting the exact words they spoke. Afterwards, when they come into the point of view which those had who uttered these sayings, they understand them and are willing to let the words go. For at any time, they can use words as good when the occasion comes. If we live truly, we shall see truly. It is as easy for the strong man to be strong as it is for the weak to be weak. When we have new perception we shall gladly disburden the memory of its hoarded treasures as old rubbish. When a man lives with God, his voice shall be as sweet as the murmur of the brook and the rustle of the corn. End quote. 
All right, so can you see how those passages, you know, what, what Seneca is saying and what Emerson is saying in these two passages are the same. And so it's great that we can take a look at these two giants of wisdom, right, and see that they're trying to get across the same point, is, which is essentially stop going around and trying to, you know, memorize these sayings, memorize these quotes, you know. Ultimately, what's going to happen is you want to have the true experience, right? You want to have the experience that those wise teachers had. And once you have that experience, you will no longer need to remember these quotes and have them at, at, at your disposal the whole time because you'll be able to call upon that deep wisdom from within and utilize that in your own words, right? In your own words that make sense in the situation. And so uh, I just love that line at the end. What does he say here? When a man lives with God, his voice shall be as sweet as the murmur of the brook and the rustle of the corn. That's so powerful. And, and that brings to mind for me, you know, I, I think that Seneca walked with God. I think Seneca lived with God. If you read some of his writings in uh, his Natural Questions, powerful stuff where he's talking about, you know, if if he had not questioned uh, things around God and, and the universe and and, uh, you know, the Logos, you know, that his life would not have been worth living. This was a man who was uh, really having the Stoic experience, right? And that's why he's saying, you don't need to go along memorizing all of these things. You want to have the experience. And once you get there, you don't need to memorize this stuff. Or as he says it himself, you know, stake your claim to freedom. That's the goal. All right, we've just got a few more verses to go here. So he says, quote, Wherever you direct your gaze, you will meet with something that might stand out from the rest, if the context in which you read it were not equally notable. For this reason, give over hoping that you can skim, by means of the epitomes, the wisdom of distinguished men. Look into their wisdom as a whole. Study it as a whole. They are working out a plan and weaving together, line upon line, a masterpiece from which nothing can be taken away without injury to the whole. Examine the separate parts, if you like, provided you examine them as parts of the man himself. She is not a beautiful woman whose ankle or arm is praised, but she whose general appearance makes you forget to admire her single attributes. End quote. All right, so this is really where I think Seneca is teaching us how we should best read his own writings, right? He might not be expressly saying, uh, you know, you should do this with my writings, but he's teaching us that when you've got a body of work, you've got to take a look at the whole thing and then you're going to get the big picture. And I've got to say that that's one of the reasons why I decided to do this series is because I don't want to just jump between, you know, here and there, a little bit of Seneca, or, you know, a bit of his letters, a little bit of his, uh, his plays, you know, I want to get the whole picture of what Seneca is trying to teach us. And, and oh my gosh, it's going to take at least more than 500 episodes, I would say, just to get through his epistles. And it's probably going to take a further 500 episodes to get through his plays and his uh, his other essays, right? Um, there's so much from Seneca that we have here. Uh, but as we work our way through, we are basically turning a low-resolution image into a high-resolution image the more we read of Seneca and we're getting this big picture of his philosophy of life. And that's so exciting, right? And 
This is certainly uh, the approach that we want to take with great thinkers. Because the thing as well is, you know, they're going to be working things out in their philosophy. What they say at the start of their writings may not be the thing that they decide is true at the end of their writings. And we want to see a true thinker thinking well, wrestling with problems, you know, not just a little piece here and there, but we want to know the whole picture. It's such a great and important lesson that Seneca is teaching us here. All right, so I'm going to pause the episode there and I'll do another episode following the latter half of this letter. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. I, I hope that you've taken away some important lessons from this. And he's probably going to be sharing much the same in the, in the second episode that we're doing here. But nonetheless, uh, it's really going to drill into us this idea that we need to come into the experience of the Stoic philosophy and not just be these students gathering little maxims here and there. There's a deeper experience to be had. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.